After months struggling with numerous health issues, former President Li Denghui passed away on Thursday evening at the age of 97. Doctors at Taipei Veterans General Hospital confirmed that his wife decided to turn off life support after Li's condition took a turn for the worse earlier this week. The presidential office has announced that starting Saturday, there will be a public memorial space at the Taipei Guest House. Funeral arrangements for the first democratically elected president of Taiwan are still to be confirmed. Early on Friday, the American Institute in Taiwan was the first to lower its flag to half-mast in honor of Li's passing. At 12 noon, the presidential office and other official and educational institutions nationwide followed suit. The flags will stay lowered for three days. The presidential office held a meeting to decide on next steps. To allow the nation and citizens in every field to mourn, the president has decided to create a memorial for the late President Lee at the Taipei Guest House. Memorials will also be created at our country's overseas offices. With regard to the funeral arrangements, such as the farewell ceremony and the funeral ceremony, we will draw up plans in forthcoming working meetings. After discussions with President Lee's family members, we will make a joint public announcement. The meeting was chaired by Presidential Office Secretary General Su Jiaquan. The heads of the Interior, Foreign and National Defense Ministries were present, as well as the President of Academia Historica and President Lee's daughters, Annie and Anna. Lee's final resting place has not yet been revealed, but sources indicate Wujur Mountain Military Cemetery may be the pick. President Lee's relatives have already had a certain amount of discussions with the Interior Ministry, including on topics like whether to choose Wujur Mountain Military Cemetery. I believe that in light of President Lee's service to Taiwan and his former position of Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces, this would be an excellent choice. He was in hospital for a total of 174 days. He suffered from numerous infections and eventually septic shock and multiple organ failure. Despite the best efforts of our medical team, we were unable to save him. In recent years, President Lee was suffering from cardiovascular problems, tuberculosis and diabetes. In February, he was rushed to hospital after choking on some milk. He developed fever and multiple inflammations, but was cared for by his loving family. He was extremely frail, but he was still able to look at photos of his great-granddaughter and videos. He would watch steadily, very clearly aware, following the footage. It was very moving for the nurses to see. But doctors revealed that President Lee was unconscious for the majority of his stay in hospital and was on mechanical life support. When his condition worsened on Monday, his wife Tsung Wenhui decided very reluctantly to turn the machine off. She was there holding his hand until the end. Yes, because his wife was distraught. Of course, it was a natural death, but he was attached to breathing apparatus. We removed it for him. On this occasion, he gave us a different kind of lesson aside from medical care. That was how to reflect on the meaning of life together with his family. Life doesn't last forever. When the time comes, we must let go. The memorial at Taipei Guest House will be open on Saturday, August 1st and stay open every day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. until August 16th. 
Former President Li Denghui was a pivotal figure in Taiwan's transition from a police state to a full-fledged democracy. Over his 12 years in office, Li spearheaded many reforms culminating in Taiwan's first direct presidential election. As Taiwan's first native-born leader, Li continued to be an outspoken advocate for Taiwan even after his tenure. His commitment to democratic values even earned him the title Mr. Democracy in the international media. It's January 13, 1988. Taiwan's leader Jiang Jingguo has just died. That very night, Li was sworn in as president of Taiwan at the presidential office. From that very moment, Li started working on an enormous task reforming Taiwan. After securing a second term in 1990, Li faced his first challenge. That year, just before his inauguration, the week-long Wild Lady student protests took off in Taipei. Li agreed to convene a national affairs conference with non-governmental organizations to spur reform in Taiwan. Li also kicked off a series of amendments to the constitution. In March 1991, the executive yuan adopted the guidelines for national unification, which, among other issues, highlighted that any unification of Taiwan and China should first respect the rights and interests of the Taiwanese. Later in April, the National Assembly abolished the temporary provisions against the Communist Rebellion, which had been enacted in 1948 to establish martial law in Taiwan. Not long after, the first steps were taken to abolish the National Assembly and transfer its powers to the legislative yuan. First, the National Assembly held direct elections, with legislative elections following in 1992. That year, the constitution was further revised to instate direct presidential elections instead of the Assembly electing a leader. I have done so with people in my heart. In 1995, Lee visited his U.S. alma mater, Cornell University, where he gave a commencement speech titled, Always in My Heart. That was his first time he publicly referred to Taiwan as the Republic of China on Taiwan. That, together with policies restricting direct contact between Taiwan and China, spurred condemnation from Beijing. But it also boosted Li's popularity in Taiwan. In 1996, Li won Taiwan's first direct presidential election with 54% of the vote. While in office, he spearheaded six constitutional amendments, conducted a complete re-election of the national legislature, and institutionalized direct elections for Taiwan's provincial governor and president. He took a step further in 1999, defining cross-strait relations as a special state-to-state -state relationship. The relationship between the two sides of the strait is a special relationship. It's a special state-to-state -state relationship. Lee was succeeded in the year 2000 by the DPP's Chen Shui-bian, marking the end of 55 years of KMT rule and Taiwan's first transition of power. After stepping down as president, Lee founded the Taiwan Solidarity Union and continued striving to protect Taiwan's democracy. His efforts earned him the title Mr. Democracy on the cover of U.S. magazine Newsweek in 1996. Li Denghui was a pioneer in the promotion of Taiwan's unofficial diplomacy. As a staunch supporter of sovereign democracy, Li was seen as a public enemy in the eyes of the Chinese Communist Party. He made a historic speech at his alma mater Cornell University in 1995, becoming the first Taiwanese leader to set foot in the U.S. Since Washington broke ties with Taiwan in 1979, he also oversaw Taiwan's first direct presidential election in 1996, which prompted China to lob missiles with dummy warheads in waters off Taiwan. This was Lee giving a commencement address at his alma mater, Cornell University, in 1995. 
It was the first visit of a sitting Taiwanese president to the U.S. since the two countries broke off diplomatic ties in 1979. In his speech, titled Always in My Heart, he spoke of how Taiwan's president would be directly elected for the first time the following year. I have done so with people in my heart. If democratic presidential elections can be held somewhere like the area covering Taiwan, Penghu, Jinmen and Mazu, then that means the area is in fact a country. Regional governments do not elect presidents. Lee revolutionized cross-strait relations, even sending agents into China to establish cross-strait communication channels. But his efforts to move Taiwan toward democracy angered China. Around the first presidential elections in 1996, Beijing conducted war games and missile tests in the waters around Taiwan. This is psychological warfare. They aren't really trying to attack Taiwan. I'm telling you, those missiles are blanks. It's nothing. These comments made during the missile crisis triggered the rapid disintegration of Taiwan's intelligence networks within China. One of Taiwan's moles in Beijing, General Liu Liankun, was discovered and later executed, and dozens of others imprisoned. The U.S. responded by sending naval fleets into the region to protect Taiwan. We can only make considered speculation about whether the U.S. would engage its troops if China were to attack Taiwan. But looking at 1995 and 1996, they did indeed send in their aircraft carrier battle groups, which, while not a declaration of war, was a very clear statement of their position. Li was undaunted by Beijing's aggression, doggedly striving to let Taiwan pursue a path of its own in the world. Since the Taiwanese presidential election and missile crisis in 1996, the trajectories of the two countries, Taiwan and China, have begun to diverge more swiftly. In 1998, Li said Taiwan and China's relationship was a special state-to-state -state relationship. This controversial comment led China to suspend communications with Taiwan. But despite overseeing some of the frostiest moments in cross-strait history and becoming an enemy of the people in Chinese eyes, Li was determined to leave a legacy of democracy for Taiwan. Taiwan's Coast Guard on Friday intercepted a Chinese sand dredger operating illegally in the waters near Penghu. Two Coast Guard vessels and a helicopter were dispatched in the operation. The eight crew members of the dredger were detained and taken to Kaohsiung for questioning. Authorities say the intercepted vessel had already mined around 600 tons of sand, which will be poured back into the sea. Chinese sand dredgers infringing on Taiwan's territorial waters have become more common since Beijing banned sand mining along its coast. This year alone, Taiwan has intercepted nearly 3,000 Chinese vessels attempting to mine sand in Taiwan's waters. Officials say the practice disturbs marine wildlife. It's also unsafe for sailors, as sand dredgers are not designed to travel far into the open sea. Three exhibitions showcasing Taiwan's indigenous people will kick off over this summer at three different locations. It's a project jointly coordinated by the Ministry of Culture, Ministry of Education and Council of Indigenous Peoples to let the public better understand the situation of indigenous people in modern-day Taiwan. The three exhibitions will feature stories from indigenous people striving to make a difference in their communities. They take to the stage with a duet. He is Tulpas Mankuku from the Kunan village tribe. She is Ibu Hu from Kayana workroom. 
This is Chujui Padrujis, the only Paiwan traditional tattoo artist in Taiwan. He demonstrates what the process entailed. The Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Culture, and the Council of Indigenous Peoples have joined forces to organize three exhibitions showcasing Taiwan's indigenous culture. Each will open at a different venue. One opened at the Taizong Science Museum on July 27th. The others are at Taidong's National Museum of Prehistory and Indigenous Peoples Cultural Development Center in Pingdong. Be it in Taiwan, Asia, or around the world, indigenous people have made outstanding contributions everywhere. It lets everyone see that indigenous groups don't just have their unique cultural attributes, but also very specialized skills. The exhibits show how indigenous people have forged a path of their own in the modern world. Through the interviews, the curators recount the stories of several indigenous people in Taiwan. One of them is Valis Tanapima, a Punong physician working at Zhenqing General Hospital in Taipei. The doctor has worked to ensure first aid preparedness in indigenous tribes, pushing for more CPR training and defibrillators. Thanks to her advocacy, the indigenous tribes in Nantou Xingyi Township now have 13 defibrillators. My specialty is first aid, so I'll be promoting first aid in the exhibition. There are more than 700 tribes in my indigenous township, but only around 100 of them have AEDs. I'm taking it step by step. Through this exhibition, I want to tell indigenous children, don't underestimate yourselves, accept yourselves. We are all so great. Organizers hope the exhibitions will give the public a better understanding of indigenous culture and encourage people to be more engaged in indigenous affairs. For Mosa News, Stephanie Yang, Liao Wenpu in Taipei. The KMT's Deng Li Yin was confirmed on Friday as the new Kaohsiung City Council Speaker after she defeated the DPP's Zhang Shengfu in a 35-27 vote. The post she took up had been vacated when the previous speaker, also a KMT member, fell mysteriously to his death from a tall building immediately after Mayor Han Guoyu's recall in June. The DPP's candidate, Zhang, was flanked by colleagues as he entered the council chamber ready for battle. Then the KMT's candidate marched in, four-term Kaohsiung City Council veteran Zheng. Before the vote, the two sides shook hands politely. What ensued was a fierce competition. Both parties had mobilized their councillors and the chamber was packed full. Sixty-five councillors attended the session and cast a vote. In the end, Zheng won 35-27 with a difference of just eight votes. It was nothing short of the expected as the KMT holds a majority in the council. The first thing after the election is over, of course, is the mayoral by-election, which is very important. There are only 15 days left. I will lead our councillors from all 38 districts to fight in our mayoral campaign. The KMT holds only 32 city council seats, but Zheng also gained four votes from non-partisan Solidarity Union councillors. Zheng should have won 36 votes, but there was an unexpected mishap involving one of the ballots. I gave my vote to Speaker Zheng, but it turned out the ballot paper had ripped and they said it didn't count. The place close to the upper edge was a little damaged. Maybe it ripped by accident. 
In addition, new Power Party councillor Lin Yukai voted for himself. His colleague Huang Jie also voted for him, meaning that the minority party nabbed two votes. Of course, we hope that in future we can become a minority party that holds the balance of power in the Kaohsiung City Council. Zeng was able to successfully emerge from this political storm to smoothly win the coveted speaker's position. KMT Chairman Johnny Chang, who once said he feared his party would be unable to hold into the post under his leadership, must be breathing a sigh of relief. Amid growing excitement about the upcoming Kaohsiung mayoral by-election, the first debate between the candidates will start at 2.30 p.m. on Saturday. It will be broadcast live on a local Kaohsiung TV channel, the Central Election Commission's website, and the Kaohsiung Mayoral Election Committee's YouTube channel. On the campaign trail, DPP mayoral candidate Chen Qimai seems calm about the prospect. Meanwhile, the KMT's candidate Jane Lee said she will be focusing on what she plans to do to improve Kaohsiung. Wei Zheng, the Taiwan People's Party candidate, says he plans to talk about employment, low wages and the environment. Domestic travel is in full gear in Taiwan, especially to the outlying islands. Penghu in particular has seen an explosion in tourism now that its International Fireworks Festival has started. Cruise liners and airlines are also taking advantage of the demand and expanding their services. Fireworks pierce the sky with colourful sparks emanating from a bridge in the sea. It's a magical sight to behold. Then, 300 drones fly in formation. They form the Penghu Great Bridge over the sea before transforming into the shape of Cupid, shooting a love arrow. It's just as spectacular as the pyrotechnics. Penghu's International Fireworks Festival has started, attracting hordes of tourists looking for an affordable escapade with the government's travel subsidies. The ferry cuts across the windy waters. It makes two round trips between Jiayi and Penghu every day. Recently, the boat has been full up for almost every trip. Eyeing a possible business venture, the Taiwan High-Speed Rail has launched a special travel package for Penghu. The package includes bullet train tickets to Jiayi, a shuttle bus to the port, ferry tickets and accommodation in Penghu. Meanwhile, an island-hopping cruise liner is luring in passengers with the chance to see the fireworks spectacle from on board the ship. Airlines have rushed to increase the frequency of services to Penghu or even switch their aircraft to bigger capacity planes. The package offers discounts for car and scooter rentals and so on. So the whole itinerary includes cheaper high-speed rail tickets, cheaper ferry tickets and some extra discounts. July isn't over and we've already reached more than half of our sale goals. With international travel out of bounds, tourists are looking for scenic trips closer to home. Local travel executives right now seem to be some of the few winners in this troubled time. The octogenarian owners of a small laundry shop in Taichung have been thrust into the international spotlight for their fashionable outfits using abandoned clothes. The couple's grandson came up with the idea of starting an Instagram account to show off his grandparents' impeccable style. The account has since garnered half a million followers from across the globe. 
grandpa is rocking a leather jacket with striking aviator glasses. In the next photo, he's wearing a sporty hoodie with a bucket hat, looking young and hip. Meanwhile, grandma is pairing a khaki two-piece over a white t-shirt, or a long camel blazer over a pleated skirt for a retro and stylish look. The two trendy models are 84-year-old Xu Xiu'e and 83-year-old Zhang Wanqi. The couple has run a dry cleaner for 70 years. The clothes they are wearing in the photos are items that clients sent in to wash but never collected. Now the two mix and match the discarded garments and make them their own. Combining the clothing like this and wearing it, it makes me feel decades younger. I thought about every aspect of it. When I was young, I would dress like this. For about a month now, they've shared their photos of their outfits on their Instagram account, which has already amassed over half a million followers. It all started when their grandson returned from overseas. He hadn't planned for his grandparents to become an international sensation. He says he just wanted his family to have a bit of fun. Because of the pandemic, I came back from overseas. It's rare for me to be back home for so long. So I had the idea. I thought, why not promote this idea of cherishing objects? The elderly couple has gone viral online, and their story has been covered by international media. The couple says a customer actually came in to pick up laundry that had been dropped off one year earlier.